So while I didn't actually start a show, I wanted to start a show. I even started to buy equipment throughout the years. Never quite put it together that you actually have to use the equipment to start the show. Every time I'd feel bold, I would just buy another piece of equipment. Podcast Junkies, episode 208, back with Eric Hunley, host of Unstructured. In case you missed last week's episode, we had Andrew Mason on, former CEO of Groupon, now CEO of Descript, on for round two to talk about all the fantastic and innovative stuff going on with that company and that software. So that's a really interesting discussion. Make sure you check that one out. Been on the road for a little bit and getting through the holidays. So apologies for the delay in getting this episode out. In this interview, we have a really interesting deep dive into the world of interviewing. Eric is a student of it, clearly, and he takes pride in his interviews. We talk about his first experience getting none other than Jordan Harbinger on the show, the amount of time he puts into the preparation, and what he does to keep his interviews interesting. We talk about how his questions service the overall interview, a little sidetrack into his second podcast, Portmanteau, and how being a host has pushed him out of his comfort zone in real life. Once again, we are brought to you by the Scarlet 2i2 sound card by the wonderful folks at Focusrite. Shout out to Dan Hewley. Can't say enough good things about this sound card. Super clean preamps, which provide a clean boost to your sound. So I've used it both with the Samson Q2U microphone, as well as the Shure SM7B, which is a bit gain hungry and definitely requires a clean sound card. So this is the new 3G third generation sound card, and it's guaranteed to make your audio sound completely professional. As always, stay to the end of the episode where you'll hear this week's retention hashtag. Let's jump into this conversation now with Eric. So Eric Hunley, host of Unstructured and Portmanteau, thank you so much for joining us on Podcast Junkies. Hey, it's an honor to be here. I feel like I've actually arrived. I mean, this is one of the main shows out there. Do you remember the first time we met? It had to be at a podcasting conference, right? I'm not sure. I know we've met at a couple now. Podcast movement. Now it was uh, 18? Yeah, yeah, in Philly. Yeah, yeah, in Philly, Philly. Wow. And then we've had uh, Orlando. Yeah, I keep forgetting. It's a, they're all, start, all starting to be, be a blur because I've actually been to every single <laughs> one of them. So I'm trying to keep them in order <laughs> so I don't forget. Yeah, I missed you at MapCon. I was hoping you were going to be there. Yeah, for for the listener, MapCon is Mid Atlantic Podcasting Conference hosted by Joe Pardo, Super Joe Pardo. Because uh, if anyone's ever been to MapCon and seen everything that this one guy does to put on a, a conference, <laughs> you're, you'd be wondering like how he doesn't lost his mind already. So I didn't make this one, which is uh, in Atlantic City, but I'd made the previous two. And he's like shooting the video. He's like the MC. He's like working the slide deck. He's like introducing guests. I mean, introducing the speakers. He's like running the like the lunch buffet table. <laughs> it was like, Joe, get some help, please. So uh, how was how was uh, this one? Oh, it was excellent. He actually had a little bit of help. He's still frenetic as can be, but that was the last MapCon. It's now going to be a indie pod yes. conference or independent podcaster conference, which I think is a cool change because the other um, conferences are getting so large with so much industry coming in, mm -hmm. radio and things like that. He's kind of rebranding and, and really doubling down on the indies, you know, all the smaller podcasters yeah. out there. And I, I think that's a good move. 
So what was different? Uh, normally, MapCon is, I love it because it's single track. And so we're all in the mm -hmm. same room. And so the two years that I was there, that's what was really fun about it. Probably a a hundred, maybe a hundred and fifty people, if that, are were right. in attendance, and so I was wondering if he changed any of that up when he uh, when he did this this most recent one. No, it was still um, single track. Everyone is in a classroom, so it's a comfortable environment, and eh, probably just over a hundred people. Same same as you had before. I mean, that's a formula I think that works and and makes that conference distinct from other ones. And I imagine the big draw there, what I noticed was that there was a lot of people that were regional. Uh, so where, where do you live in relation to Atlantic City? I live in the Virginia Beach area, technically Hampton, Virginia. And uh, you grew up there? No, I actually um, was born and raised in Tucson, Arizona. A little different? It is. It is. It's almost like the difference between LA and Minneapolis. <laughs> Weather-wise as well, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, so it's cold here, though. This is a pretty mild place, all told. We'll get maybe a couple snow days a year, you know, like just one hard freeze for a couple days, and we hide, and then we go back out, and it's, it's fine. What's the best part for you of attending these conferences? Really meeting people. Um, like in Podcast Movement 2018, I think I attended most of one of your sessions, and like 10 minutes and two others. That's it. All the rest of the time was purely talking to vendors, meeting people. Like um, we have mutual friends, Zach and Rock with us, Quadcast, spent a lot of time talking to them, interviewing people, mm -hmm. which you don't always get a chance to do, but I interviewed the CEO of Anchor while I was there. And Anchor at that time was just verboten. Everybody was very, very upset about Anchor. <laughs> And it was a great opportunity. He came, uh, agreed to interview with me, and I got to talk to him about, do creators actually own their content on Anchor? And he was saying, yes, they do own their content. And so he had changed the um, terms of services. I put it out there, and he then changed it again a couple more times, and then eventually they got bought by Spotify. So uh, it, it took away a subject for Dave Jackson to complain about <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you playing at home it's called the podcasters drinking game any anytime being a podcast that talks to podcasters about podcasting anytime we mention another podcaster <laughs> you have to do a shot so it's it's something that i made up because we inevitably talk about our friends and our peers uh in this space so it's always fun to to have them get oh, a definitely. shout out it's, it's a nerd game it's um i had a guest on one time and he knows so many different celebrities and stuff. I was like, name drops keep falling on his head. <laughs> and that's what we're doing here. So when did uh, you join the podcasting party? You know, I'm late to the party. I actually joined March of last year. Um, I'd like to think, though, I got experience by being an expert listener. Mm. I was listening all the way back on the ClickWheel iPod in 2005-06 range. So while I didn't actually start a show, I wanted to start a show. I even started to buy equipment throughout the years. <laughs> Never quite put it together that you actually have to use the equipment to start the show. Every time I <laughs> yeah. feel bold, I would just buy another piece of equipment or listen to another of name drop coming, Daniel J. Lewis, Audacity to Podcast episodes. I was um, running actually in 2014, 
time frame and head injury and I had to do pool running. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. No. It is one of the most painful, dreadful things you'll ever do in your life. You have a flotation device on your stomach and you just run in place in the pool. So that way you can keep in running shape. I was training up for a marathon and I needed to get the running in, but just sitting there in a pool (laughs) running in place and slowly floating from one side to another, I had a set of headphones on. I was trying to make sure, you know, they're Bluetooth, my phone's off to the side. And it's like, they would be destroyed if they fell in the water. But I'm like, I've got to listen to something. It was just show after show of of um, Daniel J. Lewis in my ear talking about podcasting. That's funny. Do you consider yourself a gearhead? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. Uh, just a big nerd. I, I had a, a blog where I was doing sports equipment reviews like um, Garmin, okay. GPS watches, things like that. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I have had multiple Apple watches generations. I actually sent back the Gen 5 because I determined it wasn't enough of a change from the Gen 4 or series four. Yeah. So that's like my, my bit of maturity. It's like, I'm skipping a year. (laughs) Everybody give me a cookie. You should be proud of me. (laughs) It gets to be an expensive habit. It does. That's why I have a day job and no kids, double income, no kids. You have a spouse. I do. Yep. Thankfully. And so that must make for interesting discussions when it comes to purchases over a certain dollar amount. I think she's given up on it and I'm always trading things up anyway. So it's kind of like, eh, you know, I'll sell the old one or do reviews. Like to get some on my Macs, I wrote a couple books to get money to do Mm. that. Things like that. What's your earliest piece of tech gear that you can remember? Wow. Um, I don't know if you call it tech, but I, I would. I got a console stereo system when I was like eight or nine. I don't know if it came from Goodwill or relative that didn't like us or or what, but it was just a hunk of junk, but I pulled the whole thing apart and actually got it working and got the stereo plane and the record player to work. So that's the first thing that really is impactful to me. Was it one of those old radiolas where the the furniture and the the turntable and like everything was like all part of like one piece of furniture? It was, it was a, a full console and it had a sliding you know, sliding doors on the top, the wooden doors back mm. and forth. And you had the, the radio on one side. Like I said, that's why it was relatives who probably didn't like us because they didn't want, it was taking up a chunk of their house. Yeah. But um, I loved it. I got it working. Actually, those had really good sounds. Yeah. I, I'm of an analog age. So that, that was in the 70s. And I grew up with records, you know, stacked and just playing mm. through over and over. Yep. Yes, I'm old. Do you ho- do you have any uh, analog gear now, like vacuum tube amps? I don't. I had a vacuum tube, um, I think it's Trace Elliott bass amp that wound up practically being stolen. Essentially, it was at a bandmate's house, and the- suddenly the person moved. <laughs> but that that was the last thing I had. I do you remember Crutchfield magazine. It was uh, oh yeah, it was a magazine for like audiophiles, and I would just like pour through that and just be like, had all like the the really really like sweet and high end like uh, electronic gear. I remember it. I didn't go deep into it, but I I remember like the the nineties. I don't think we're that far apart, but yeah. Do you re- remember how in the late nineties all the tube amps were really starting to make a comeback? Macintosh was one of them, I think. Macintosh amps. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I know that all the tubes are coming out of Russia. Mm. 
because at the fall of the Soviet Union, they were so far behind on their technology that they had all the analog stuff and they hadn't gone solid state yet. So they were converting to solid state, but they still had all these factories and everything else that were producing the tubes. It's just a weird piece of trivia. Really? That's so interesting. Was it something special about how tubes were made in Russia that people were like, or just the price of them were so low that everyone was getting them from there? No, that they were actually made. Nobody's making them. Yeah. Everybody had moved on to solid state here. So it was kind of like this, this neat discovery is almost like um, going back to the fifties or something and saying, Oh, now you have a sourcing. And that's why the actual tubes started to come back in. Sort of like a, uh car maybe car parts for like classic cars being sourced from cuba or something well i'm waiting for that to happen because i I, i'm thinking you know they actually kept those things running and somebody should be doing a show on that i'm sure they're in development but i mean you have like counting cars and i had the guy on from a toy makers the history channel car show Mm -hmm. so there's an interest out there for yeah. those shows, I mean, wouldn't it be great? Somebody, you know, with some cameras going around there and finding all these Cuban restorations. Also, how they did it, all the Band-Aid and bailing wire <laughs> that they used. <laughs> yeah, I mean, now that the embargo's been lifted, there's, I don't even know where, I don't I don't keep really keep on tabs of the latest in terms of the, the news and, and uh, what's happening in that uh, region of the world. But I, I think now there's more opportunities for, more businesses to maybe start there so it'll kind of be a shame because i think part of the the charm of cuba is the fact that you from what i've seen i haven't been but you go and you see the pictures and you're just literally transported back to you know whatever that era is you know 40s and 50s It's, it's pretty crazy well they're smart and i you know i met a ton of cubans because i was stationed in Guantanamo bay Oh, really? Right. So, you know, Gitmo is where they hold all the terrorists now, but I was there in the late 90s. Yeah. And that was when they had that mass exodus, and we were feeding about 100,000 of, you know, Cubans. Hmm. These are the sharpest people around. I mean, it's a crazy society what they've had to go through and things like that, but I think they're smart enough to say, keep, you know, freeze things in time keep this particular charm mm-hmm. i mean if anything uh, if i was a movie studio i'd buy swaths of it because you could get cheap labor you have perfect um sets designs for yourself oh yeah and i would just buy it out kind of like um the way they found a good way to preserve a lot of rainforest was just buy it yeah yeah makes sense yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens to that whole culture and how it starts to change and be modernized and how it's going to affect both the people there and nothing nothing stays still forever so like we we all have like this idyllic fantasy of like being you know a a particular decade that was nostalgic or something we're like oh if things were like they were back then but i think there's something the the one constant with progress is that it's always moving forward it's always changing and um it's always like you're always looking back and i think as you get older there's always the generations like you know you're getting you've reached a plateau of a next generation when the previous generation's music just starts to sound weird (laughs) you know like parents with elvis they'll be like what is that or with rock and roll they're like that's crazy music and like and then like i mean i was around for early days of hip-hop but now i listen to rap music and i'm just like i literally don't understand it and i was just like and i don't get it and i and i just can't get into it and i'm just and i feel like you know the 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 old man on the on the in the rocking chair on the porch being like 
hey, you kids, like, <laughs> turn down that crazy music. I agree. And you know what's funny is when I, in the 80s, the golden oldies were from the 50s. That was 30 years, right? Now, classic rock is 40, 50 years old. Oh, yeah. So it's even older than what was old. Yeah. And that's mind-blowing. And I don't like the fact that I'm close to that age myself. <laughs> yeah, the classic, the oldie station from where I grew up, you, like you said, used to play like the the, uh, the 50s and the 60s. And now they're playing like music from like the 80s and the 90s. On the oldie station, you're just like, oh, man. I know. It's wrong. It is so wrong. And oh, oh here's another one. The cars that you grew up with are, have antique plates now. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a low blow. It's like, no. What what was the car that you uh drove when you were in like in your teens and, and what was the car that you coveted? Um God, I coveted anything that was better than what I had. I had a uh, 1965 yellow Ford pickup, short bed, something or another. And the funny thing is it's actually a really popular vehicle. Um, and a lot of people covet it. I hated it because I wanted to drive like just a Toyota or something. I, I'm I thought that the stupid thing looked ridiculous. It looked like a work truck or something. My dad was a general contractor. I didn't want to be associated. So there's always that whole thing. <laughs> so I had that for a bit. Yeah. Then I got a Toyota Corolla, totaled that, <laughs> and then got an even worse car. It was a 1972 Lincoln Continental, which would eat up most of my paycheck with gas. <laughs> that was just miserable. And on down the line. And what are you driving now? Now I drive a uh, Hyundai Ionic with, um, it's a hybrid. I like yeah. it. I had a BMW um, Z3 for a bit and finally came to the realization that I'm 6'2", not the lightest guy on the planet, but I didn't fit in it very well. Mm. The car is beautiful. It looked great on the outside, mm -hmm. but on the inside, it's like, eh, not that special. And I thought, wait a minute. I'm not outside looking at my car. I'm sitting inside. And I already know that uh, I have a face for radio. I'm never going to look good. So why don't I put <laughs> the good stuff that I want to look at inside and be comfortable? And, well, everybody else can just kind of suck it up. That's true. Yeah, you never – I remember I would always have, like, a, a fun car, and you would rarely get to see yourself in the car. It would only be on those occasions when you pulled up next to, like, a building with, like, a plate glass window. Exactly. And you, you would catch yourself, like, in the reflection. You'd be like, oh, that's what I look like in my own car. <laughs> and it's <laughs> yeah. just been – it's very rare to, to see it because, like, to your point, you spend 95% of the time, like, inside looking out. Yeah, meanwhile, you're like, oh, they don't even have a cup holder, for God's sake. Or, you know, it's like, <laughs> well, I want to hook up my iPhone phone to the damn stereo and it just ugh, they don't have anything you know now it's like boom carplay Ooh, look at that yeah oh my mapping's going through my phone we take it for granted now oh i don't <laughs> i love it <laughs> i'm like who so seat warmers you were listening since 2005 2006 uh you've always been an avid gearhead mm -hmm. so what was it about the timing that made you decide it was um, you were ready to to host your own podcast. I finally got motivated enough because I got annoyed with somebody. I had been planning to do a show forever. Started out wanting to do an a show on Apple products because I'm a big mm -hmm. Apple nerd. Love all that. The first shows I listened to were like MacBreak Weekly and 
it's called the talk show. It's John Gruber. He does a daring fireball. I listened to it back with Dan Benjamin as his partner. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, I'd like to do a tech podcast because I know tech and things like that. But then I'm like, well, they already do. Why would anybody listen to me? So I kept moving on. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do a running podcast. I can do original things there. My writing's well-received. But I never quite got that off the ground. And I think it's because maybe deep down inside, I realized I would get bored. Hmm. Well, one thing that I did do when I was running is not only listen to podcasts, but a, a ton of audiobooks, especially. And I love people like Malcolm Gladwell. I love Freakonomics. I love Jonathan Haidt and all of these things. And I discovered a show called Mixed Mental Arts, and they interview all these authors. And in their community, there's also a community there. Most of the people in there are smarter than I am. <laughs> and I wanted to talk to the authors myself. I wanted the opportunity to talk to some really cool, fascinating people. But I, I'm not competing with them. I don't want to pretend that I'm smarter than them or anything else. I want it to be accessible. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of wanted an idea pub is the way I thought of it. Like, what does it sound like if we're having a drink together and I got a chance, you know, the person walked up and they said, I'm an FBI agent. You're what? How does that work? And then I could just sit there and talk to them for a while and, you know, pick their brain and it'd always be somebody different. So that was kind of my idea was to go into that. I was kind of scared to death to do it on my own because I'm nobody mm -hmm. and decided that I was going to maybe have a co-host because if I had a co-host, well, I could lean on him a little bit and he, he's a really, really smart dude. But what happened was he was interested in writing a book on stuff and they started inviting other people in to help compile this book. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Your book is cool, but this is a podcast thing. This is my idea. Stop. And <laughs> I actually got annoyed enough. And it's probably a good thing that I just said, I'm starting. And I just started hammering at it on my own, you know, and pushed everybody away and decided to do it. So the, was the, did you start in an original podcast with your co-host and then change no. to, to what's now unstructured? Um, I just started unstructured by myself from episode one, uh, ironically with the co-host of mixed mental arts as my first guest. Okay. Hunter Motts. What was the strategy or what was the approach in terms of who you were going to go after, um, and being someone that wasn't in your own words, was, was someone that was unknown. How are you going to go after these folks and where are you going to find them? And what, how are you pitching the show to them in the early days? A lot of it is just opportunistic. I would go and look at the community I was already in, you know, a mixed mental arts. There were some really smart people in there. So I started to pick from people I had talked to a lot in there. And one of the people in there, for example, is Daniele Bolelli, who does um, two shows, History on Fire, which is a major show, and The Drunken Taoist. And he is an amazing, generous guy. Yep. That's where I first heard of him. He's just fantastic. Well, you watch Joe or listen to Joe Rogan. He's been on Joe Rogan about eight times. <laughs> so you may have heard him there too, but yeah, he is, he's just super generous. I asked him really early on, right? When I was starting, I was like, if, you know, if I get going, okay, will you come on? He said, sure. 
because we have a text back and forth. I was like, oh my God, I can get Daniele. And so, you know, I of course read everything he did and had him on in like episode 20, but that, that gave me confidence. Another thing that gave me confidence was I ran an overcast ad early and coincidentally I had Jordan Harbinger reach out to me through Hunter to get on the show. And I was like, wow. And I had this great, you know, mental illusion that Jordan, the great Jordan Harbinger had discovered my show and had listened. He was so impressed with my skills that he was going to come on my show. And he reached out to Hunter, like, do you know this guy? And whatever. And Hunter's like, yeah, Eric's good people. Um, You can go on. And so he connected us and I had Jordan Harbinger scheduled for the future. Now that, Open my mind to say, I can talk to people. Now, when I finally did have Jordan on, I found out it was okay. He had been fired from Art of Charm. He had, he even read me the email he sent to Hunter. He's like, yeah, I'm kind of on my ass here and have to whore myself out as much as possible <laughs> and rebuild my business. Um, I saw an overcast ad for this guy. Is he any good? I saw you were a guest. <laughs> My my giant fantasy of greatness just sort of shriveled into a very small package. He did come on, and how'd that go? It was excellent. Uh, we had a really good conversation. He had to delay it because he got sick, and then we saw each other at Podcast Movement, talked for, you know, what, approximately 20 seconds. That's about all the time you have. But got a chance to meet him, and then when he actually did come on, it was fun. I mean, we, we talked probably for an hour, recorded for another hour and change, and then talked some more for like a half hour afterward. We just got on really well. By that point, I, I felt a lot more relaxed. And ironically, because of the cancellation, it was all the time in the future and all that, I was kind of like, I almost was okay if he didn't, never came on. Mm-hmm. Because just the fact that he was going to come on gave me the confidence, gave me the courage to go after other people. And they started to say yes. And then when you get a couple, and you know, I I work very, very hard. I mean, I do six to 10 hours for every guest of research. It shows. And Mm -hmm. they see the names I've had before. So I get, you know, guests to refer other guests or. They just can look at my feed. What was the biggest fear for you in terms of uh, having these conversations? Have, have you had uh, interviews like that before, or was this something you're sort of learning as you go in the early days? It's learning as I go. Very early days, I kind of knew who the guests were. Um, they were almost friends. I mean, as, as friends as you can be as a Facebook friend. That helped. But... I'm always afraid. I'm still afraid. I am terrified of doing a crappy job. I don't want to do a crappy job right now. I, I am completely focused in the moment anytime on, I'm on the microphone. I'm not the most talented person in the world. I'm trying to make up for it by work. How are you preparing um, differently? What were you listening to? Um, who are you watching? What were you doing to try to continuously improve as a podcast host? I mostly depend on 
on my research and trying to be in the moment. And the problem is for me, I don't care for the sound of my voice. I've gotten used to it, but I don't care for it. I never did. I also know that I'm going to flub. I know my pacing's a little weird, but I am understandable. And it probably bothers me more than other people. So my preparation is to really be dead on and to establish a connection. If I can establish a connection to the guest and ideally set them off guard, then the rest is going to flow. People will overlook a lot of flubs and I've done, I've got a bunch in the can. So almost 190 of them, they're not all out, but through the repetition and the practice and the fact that I'm being deliberate because Malcolm Gladwell got the 10,000 hour rule wrong. It's actually deliberate practice and not always 10,000 hours. But anyway, I digress over time. I just sound better, but it's very incremental. I sound maybe 0.01% better every interview, but they accumulate on each other and I get more and more polished as I go. How much are you veering off of the prep work that you're doing? So you're doing say five to six hours for a major guest and, and you probably have notes somewhere that you've either mm-hmm. taken a look at, reviewed, read, jotted down, have in front of you as you're doing the interview. Talk a little bit about what happens when the interview starts and how much you find your sticking to your original plan and then how, how how much you've found that you've had to actually veer off either um on purpose because that's where the conversation went or because it wasn't turning out the way you had planned it depends and all the time i'll give you an example we'll go back to jordan harbinger i can't name drop too many people so i'll just keep using the same ones with jordan i spent probably 30 to 40 hours on prep that's a lot some guests a lot more especially if they have a book because i listen to the whole audiobook so there's eight ten hours depending on that but the funny part about jordan was i did all this prep i was getting ready geared up to do the interview and then it got canceled and i try to um i don't know if you've heard of the term just in time learning yeah yeah that's sort of my focus is i really want to be fresh i Uh, I will be listening to them interviewed on my way home from my day job. So when I'm interviewing, it's almost like we're continuing the conversation. They don't know it, but we've been talking in my mind. I hear their voice. I'm, I'm comfortable with the rhythm and the pattern. And I'm thinking about things all the way then. Well, Jordan did all that research. Finally came to realize that while he is the, quote, Larry King of interviewing, and a brilliant interviewer, major influence, that's not what made him who he is. He's a master guest. And yeah, I could see that. Your show, that's one of them I listened to. Um, Lockheads, uh, Daniel uh, Geffen did a phenomenal interview with uh, Jordan because he did something I learned from it. He poked at him. Like, okay, that was interesting. Hmm. But what happened was when I came up with that, I threw out almost all the research I did and started angling in about him being a guest. So that that's an example. That was actually pre-interview. Mm-hmm. Other interviews, and I have 
terrible short-term memory, but a lot of it is I, I have a hook, you know, I'm trying to find a way to, to get to the guest. And by that, I mean, not to irritate them necessarily, but if I get them to either <laughs> laugh, startle them, mm-hmm. confuse them or do something, I will have engagement. Like a pattern interrupt. Yes. Yes. And most guests out there, they've done their rounds and they do it over Mm -hmm. and over and over. And how in the world am I going to stand out or get people to listen to my episode unless, unless there's something different about it, Mm -hmm. unless the interviews are unique. So I'll do things like, um, Chris Voss is a FBI agent, wrote a fantastic book called never split the difference. I highly recommend it. And if you ever listen to him, he's one of the coolest sounding guys in the world. He just, he's got this vibe coming off of him. Hey, how you doing? You know, he's just, and he's got his late night FM DJ voice and you know, he's master presenter. Yeah. But the funny thing is, he's kind of got a little bit of a, a New York thing going. Mm-hmm. But he's from Iowa. <laughs> so that's how I started the interview. As I was like, you know, you're from Iowa, right? Yeah. And he's kind of, what's, are, are you like uh, we had in the Army that everyone in the Army over time starts to sound Southern? That you being in the <laughs> FBI over time have to sound New York? And he's laughing. But now suddenly what that was unexpected he's laughing he's saying well yeah you kind of got to fit in and and so now we're we're actually talking yeah so that's sort of my goal i don't always get it i i try to get that but that's my goal and if i'm talking then now we're communicating now now the guest is engaged the interview's automatically 20 percent better immediately mm-hmm. and then if i can you know later on like i said uh was it his question i said yeah you got that question from the um pittsburgh drug dealer he goes wow you did read (laughs) (laughs) and and that's it it's funny but you've been around you're a podcast fan that's why you have podcast junkies how many interviewers are lazy a lot a lot it's not only lazy it's also um disinterested Mm -hmm. not curious and forgetting that there's a third person in the room. Right. I think it's like a whole combination of all those things. Cause you and I could have like an inside podcasting chat, but sure. if I'm not, if I'm forgetting that there's, there's a purpose to these because I'm, I'm sharing my conversations with my audience. Uh, I, I don't like to lose track of that. And I, I occasionally will make reference to that specifically within a podcast interview, just to remind myself, because sure. sometimes I get sucked into a conversation and I'm like, Oh, look at us having just fun. And, you know, talking about all these references to people and places and conferences that, you know, maybe the people know nothing or don't know what MapCon means. It sounds like some military like grade. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> MapCon four, you know, <laughs> nothing to do with DEF CON, but yeah, just things like that. I'm just keeping that in mind. And, uh, and it's a, it's a great way for me to just be reminded of how much I can continue to improve, to continue to be engaged, to be curious, because it's not something I want to take for granted. And it's like you said, each guest brings their own dynamic. Oh yeah. And, and for, and for some, you have to work a little bit harder and for some you have to find different ways to engage with them. And, and I think what you're doing with uh, finding that, that point that shows that you've a, either done the research 
or you don't take yourself too seriously, or you know you want to show that you can relate to them and, and you have something that uh, is, is a comment or a reference that they can appreciate. I mean, all those little things show that you're really valuing their time, but you're also valuing your listener's time as well. Yeah. And there's an automatic filter too. If I have to spend six to 10 hours researching somebody, I better be interested. <laughs> I mean, so that is built in. Have you ever done research and, you know, halfway through you're like, I'm not sure this is going to be a good guest. I've had, and you don't have to mention, names. I'm not going to, <laughs> I've had it to where I'll, I'll challenge a guest on things. So later on, because I study you, you've got a question to ask. And I was like, okay, I already know the answer to that one. So I'm not going to preface it early, but I, I will, I just say go after them, but I, I might go after them a little bit. I, I might say, um, well, that's, that's really interesting. Why are you, you know, why are you doing that or, or what's going on? And mm -hmm. I, I'll give you an example. It's, it's nothing poor or bad, but I had a guest on and he was talking about his polyamorous lifestyle and how his, um, his first wife had at Bernie man said, do you want to go to the orgy, you know, room? Yeah. And he's like, hey, 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 yeah. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> well, and, and this guy's kind of made a whole field about sex positivity and everything and all that. Yeah. And he was going on about it, and I thought about it, and I, I'm a pretty monogamous guy. I'm very boring, very staid, but I, I have trouble with some of that. So I just asked him later on. I said, mm-hmm. Did you ever find out why she wanted to go to that orgy? And he admitted he had never asked her, and he had done hundreds of interviews, and nobody had ever asked him that question. Hmm. But that was actually, to me, it was a bit of a challenge because it's like you're, yeah, yeah, of course. you're going into this, and you know their relationship just shattered. He said it was a horrible divorce and all this stuff, and I, I couldn't help but think in my head, it's like, why did that happen? So I, I will ask that kind of question, or if something sticks out to me. I'm going to ask. I had a CIA agent on. This isn't a personal thing against him, but he was talking about a deed, and we were going into you know Black Hawk Down, Somalia stuff because he served over there. And I said, "Do you? It seems like we're always training our enemies." And mm -hmm. he, you know, didn't dispute it. But oh god, another name drop. It was very flattering to have Mark Deal, who actually teaches interviewing comment about yeah. it on twitter that he really loved that i i went there so i have that in the back of my mind that somebody's listening right now mm -hmm. and they want to know this question and yeah, of course I, I have an interview coming up and i already have an uncomfortable question that i think i may be putting <laughs> out and it's about steroids now the person admitted mm. um doing steroids yeah I mean, you know, they're completely honest. They're off of them, things like that. And they're a great person, have a, you know, full career. But I don't know if you, I think you were a runner at one time too, right? Uh, and I ran a little bit in high school, yeah. Okay. Have you, have you read heavily into it? Like people who were a strong runner and built up a lot of fitness, then fall out of shape, but they tend to get back into shape and get up to peak form super fast because the gains are still there. Mm. They just have to sort of be shaken out, the weight loss, things like that. 
I would imagine that depends. Are you alluding to like maybe the runner's body type that allows for that type of uh, any body type thing to happen? Any t- body type, especially if in the their prime they got put into that full shape. So it could be bodybuilder, it could be a runner, whatever. But like when you build the muscles for this activity, they're still there. They may go fallow. That makes sense. Yeah, they they're still there. So people, you know, will recover with great fitness. Well, here's the question. If you are using steroids and with the use of the steroids, you build yourself up to almost superhuman level. Even if you quit steroids and you go fallow and you might come back a few years later, are you not still benefiting from those same gains that built that template of yourself up here? at a a peak level versus the person who never did it and never could get to that peak level. Mm -hmm. That's essentially the question. I'll keep an ear out for that. (laughs) And it is, I I admit it's, it's uncomfortable, but I, I, I don't know people who do steroids. I would love to ask this question. I, I I want, I kind of want to know that. Well, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's your opportunity. You know, what's interesting sometimes about those types of, um, and just in general about this topic is because I've been in that position a couple of times where I've, I've, had to make like a instant on the air, so to speak, judgment calls as as to how far I'll go. And, right. you know, naturally, I you know, every podcaster wants to hear, well, nobody ever asked me that. Well, like, that's the first time like anyone's ever asked me that question, or that's a great sure. question. It's like the podcaster, the podcast host, ego stroking oh, yeah. show. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And like, we're always listening to everyone else's show. So we're just like, whoa, I gotta, I gotta get one of those questions in, or I want to be that person who has that. So I think it's interesting because, um, to your point, it, fe- it feels like a fine balance as a podcast host and in general to just keep an eye uh, out for our ego. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we're, on the air and we have a show now we're automatically in the eye whether whether we like our voice or not whether we like um our you know the way we interview guests or not whether we feel we're uncomfortable the fact that we keep going means there's a there's some bit of like um you know ego stroking there i don't know how how that gets measured oh we're all slightly narcissistic yeah and so i i think i think um it's it's just an interesting topic and 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 sometimes i wonder if there's people who like specifically look for like i'm just going to work so hard to just ask the questions and never get asked and if it's for the point of diving deeper into knowing that guests better or or showing or or educating your audience as to what this guest is really about i think that's that is valuable and this i'm just thinking out loud i'm just wondering if there's also sometimes the uh, people that do it just for the sake of like pushing buttons and so just trying you know because i think there was a there was a famous sports interviewer years ago i think in like the 80s who was like known for making like Ball players cry or something. Yeah, like that. no, no. <laughs> like, no and and it was like it was funny. So, and you know, if it happens naturally, and and just like someone just caught off guard by your question, and be like, oh wow, that's like really like, you can tell that they want to. They're they're giving you like a heartfelt response, and you just they get choked up about it. That's that's something that's interesting, and I think it, it's it's something that I don't take lightly. And when I see that moment happening, I'm, I, I try to give it as much space as possible. And that's also why I do the video. I use the video aspect of the interview, even though um, I don't publish, publish the video, but I, I think it's, there's something about the eye contact sure. and seeing someone like literally like 
their eyes go up in the corner of their head, you know, they're thinking about the question, their head tilts, and you like, you pick up on all that stuff when you're doing a face-to-face interview. So yeah, it's sort of just wide ranging, thinking out loud sort of stuff as you, as you brought that up. I'm just wondering if that's things that you think about, you know, as you're having these interviews and, and you think about not only the relationship with your, your audience and the guests, but also about your relationship and the one you're trying to build with your guests uh, and, and yourself. All the time. While I want to ask a probing question or a difficult question, it is always in the service of the overall interview. And if I feel like somebody is going to truly feel attacked or hurt, I'm not a bully. And I, I am aware that you can easily pivot into, like you said, that sportscaster or whatever, which I, I think is a bully tactic. You, you, we are in a yeah. power position. We may not be powerful in the great yeah, scheme, yeah. but in this moment, mm-hmm. you are controlling this interview. And I do not, I don't want to make somebody cry. I don't want to walk away and ever feel ashamed of mm. what I did. And that shame could come from either attacking somebody or humiliating them needlessly but it can also come from supporting somebody making statements that I feel are wrong or could be misrepresentative to somebody else down the path. So that's kind of my balance. If I were to ask you why you continue to have your podcast and why you continue to seek guests and broadcast yourself and your your interviews on the air, what would your answer to that be? I'm addicted to it. I would like this to become my actual gig. I love it that much. Mm-hmm. I love the mm-hmm. communication. Every every interview is a dance. Every interview is also uncomfortable. Yeah. But that's good. If, if I'm ever comfortable, then I don't care. Mm-hmm. And... I want to keep growing. That that's really, you know, I I want to be good at this. Mm-hmm. Where would you say you're you're at now? I think I am a proficient journeyman. Where would you say you need to grow? I need to get the reps in. I mm-hmm. just need to get the reps in. I think my research is pretty bang on. I think my questions are good. I can work on my performing. I can work on my my voice, my delivery, my tonality. I have um still on occasion. I don't do a lot, but I have them. I have other crutch words that sneak in because every time I get rid of one crutch word, something else comes back. So mm-hmm. a big one for me is cool. Mm. <laughs> cool. <laughs> don't know why, but... Use that one a lot, and it might be uh, my age. I want to get to the level of a Joe Rogan, who I think is a brilliant interviewer. Agreed. I think he's actually underrated by many, but I can't think of anyone, not even Howard Stern, who can sit for three hours one-on-one with somebody of such a wide background. He speaks everybody from Elon Musk to another comedian to other scientists. That kind of skill is something that mm-hmm. I would love to have. I'd like to strive for. And Howard Stern is brilliant too, but he's got a whole team. They do research for him. 
things like that. Joe Rogan is a very unique individual, and I like that. And it's going to take me a lot of years and a lot of reps to learn enough to be able to keep up with people in that manner and perform live. Because that would be an ultimate goal, is, would be to interview people live with an audience. Kind of like a Sam Harris thing. Why is that important to you? One, I can make a living doing it. I need to have a big enough crowd to have this. Um, There's a lot of things you can make a living doing. That's true, but I enjoy it. So I, I am actually passionate about it. If I could get it to pay for itself, then I could focus all my efforts into what I am doing. That's why it's important to me, most of all. I love living in that moment. How do I fund that moment? I keep growing that moment. I also want to see the country. I want to see the world. I want to meet the people that I'm talking to. I like to, mm -hmm. ironically, I enjoy talking to somebody in the pub equally as much as an interview. And they're ostensibly this, the same type of conversation. They are, except I'm a little drunker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the social lubricant helps a little bit sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the iced tea, it doesn't completely do it for me, but I figure it's good to be. <laughs> and everyone that's tried the, the drunken podcast inevitably like realizes that they don't know when to actually stop the drinking. So that the tail end of the interview always ends up <laughs> being just a whole big slur fest. Yep. I did one one time. I got just completely lit, had a couple other people on it was for one of the behind the scenes episodes I have. Yeah. Thankfully I recorded it and I told everybody, yeah, we're not doing, we're not releasing that one. <laughs> Cause I listened back to it and I was like, yeah, I could just tell I'm slurring. I'm sloppy. It's just, it's horrible. You know, I, I felt, Oh, I was relaxed and loose. It's like, no, mm. no, it was dreadful. Never, ever, ever, ever. That's the other thing. Joe Rogan's half stoned and drunk and he's able to do it. Just unbelievable. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, to his point, I mean, if you think he, he's basically doing three one hour interviews, every single interview, mm -hmm. right? So when you talk about reps Easily. and you talk about like the hundreds and, and hundreds and hundreds of that he's done and how he, I think part of it is how he how his mind works in terms, because when you're a com you're, you're a comedian, um, you have to write your own material, and he, and he sure. routinely talks about how he actually throws out all his jokes from his previous mm -hmm. live show, and he just starts fresh again. So I think, and then he's got the martial arts discipline. Um, so it's so funny because it's it's this appearance of a meathead um, th that rubs a lot of people the wrong the wrong way, but I think it's just his natural curiosity and his uh, ability to admit when he doesn't know the answer or that he's mm -hmm. out of his league like you know like he occasionally did when he was uh, speaking to elon um oh yeah <laughs> so he you know he, he doesn't take himself too seriously but he knows when he has the opportunity to kind of uh, bring a an important topic to light and the and the reach that he has, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I don't, I don't know. I'm speaking, and I, I don't want to speak for him, but I think that he he doesn't take that responsibility lightly. So I think he's conscious of like the conversations he's having there. And granted, he has his all comedy buddies, and I skip the the comedians and I skip the MMA stuff for the most part. Well, he comes across as authentic. I, I think that's you know the fact that he is a meathead looking guy, but he's very smart. He's he feels real. Because he's unnatural. Yeah. 
You know, it's yeah, like yeah. if he was too polished and too perfect in any which way, things would start to unravel. But no, he does his own thing. And if he lights up a joint, you expect him to light up a joint. It, it doesn't surprise you. Yeah. The most surprising thing is that he's a lot smarter than people would expect. But he also comes across as a pretty generous person. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because, you know, it's been talked about how over three hours it's very hard to stand up as a guest in that. Well, he's standing up for three hours over and over and over and over and over himself. So he's revealing a good bit of himself while he's doing the interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. So with all the work that you have to do into putting it, putting together unstructured and where do you want to build it, you find the time to actually have a second podcast as well, Portmanteau. <laughs> so, oh God, that was having, having, having started a couple of podcasts and to all the other podcast hosts out there who know exactly where you're at and they, who have been in the, in the same space. Um, what was your reason for deciding it, w- it was time to at least have another one? It's funny, but I was listening to a previous guest of yours, um, Andy Wong. Yeah. And he had on, oh God, I can't remember the guest. I apologize. But the guest was talking about how he loved wordplay and he loved cramming words together. I was like, yeah, it's portmanteau. And he kept going on about how he was in college and he would get the words. And I'm like, yeah, it's a portmanteau. And yes, I do talk to myself when I'm listening to a podcast in the car. A lot of people do, I'm sure. (laughs) So I admit it. Well, let's just say that he wasn't getting the word out. Mm. And uh, I was letting him know very clearly in the car, it's a portmanteau. (laughs) Eventually, all of a sudden it popped in my head. Wait a minute. That's a show. And I even thought mm. there's a dot show uh, URL, portmanteau.show. Ooh. And I have a habit of making portmanteaus. Oh, yeah, me too. Much to my wife's chagrin. I can't help it. I don't even remember them half the time, but if I see hear two words, I'm smashing them together. I I don't I didn't realize that there was a, there was we should start a Facebook group for this. I didn't realize there was a thing, but it's a condition. My partner just like I don't know if she's annoyed just yet, but it's just literally something that I just do naturally. <laughs> like if I heard two words and I'm just like, what would the combination of those words? I was like mm-hmm. telling, showing my uh, my niece I was visiting in, in New York recently. And I was like, what would it be if we had, you know, like there's brunch, right? And I'm like, what if it's breakfast and dinner? Is it Brenner or is it Dunch? <laughs> well, that's the other thing is it, you, you have the different ways. You're like, yeah, wait, breakfast and is it breakfast? No, direct would be bad. Uh, wait, and and you actually do play with the different words and everything. And then yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I kept going down that concept because it's like, okay, this is something I do naturally. It's something that drives my wife crazy. So I've got I've got something that's polarizing, and everything I've studied and read says find something that is polarizing. Because mm-hmm. the, then the people who love it will really love it. The people who hate it, well, they'll really hate it. But at least you'll have passion. I was like, okay, well, what? where can I go with it? And everything that I thought about, it just kept reinforcing itself. Even um, the cover design, uh, black and mm-hmm. white, smashed together with words split mm-hmm. into two different parts. Okay. I could do cover episode art if I wanted to with each word being back and forth to demonstrate it. It's exactly opposite of unstructured in every way. Mm. 
Unstructured is a long form show. Yeah. Portmanteau is two to five minutes. Unstructured is an interview show where pretty much always have guests. Portmanteau never will have a guest. If I ever have to have a guest, they'll go on unstructured. It'll be me. There you go. On a structure talking about portmanteau. No. um, The key thing is that is opposite too. Unstructured is wide open. It's probably the biggest weakness of the show of all is that it's not niche. The niche of unstructured is the interview itself. I finally figured that out. It's communication Mm -hmm. and, and getting known as an interviewer. So that's sort of where I keep doubling down, doubling down, doubling down on the conversational interview style. Um, portmanteau is a niche on a niche on a niche. Because you mm-hmm. could say, hey, what is a niche? Well, language. Okay, what's a niche of that? English. A niche of that? Grammar. Mm-hmm. What's a niche on that? Uh, a type of grammar. Okay, well, how about a specific type of word? I can't think of anything that goes down any smaller. And it's so niche down that the one word is both the description and the show. And I guess most of all, why I had to do is it was the first idea I've ever had that rang. It literally was like a tuning fork in my brain. Every way I couldn't sh- knock it down. Hmm. And I've never had that. I always am good at, you know, somebody else have something and I have great ideas for them. Yeah. But when it comes to myself, I suck. <laughs> I don't know. It's a curse. Like, you'll come up to me and say, well, I'm doing this and this. And I'm like, well, you should do this. You should do this. You should do this. And I, I'm just full of ideas. But if it's like, Eric, what are you going to do? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Eric, why are you doing? Uh, uh, I don't know. That was the first time I was like, yeah. Who would be the most surprised that you are a podcast host right now? Who would be the most surprised? I don't know. Most people who meet me in real life, you, you've met me in real life. I'm pretty low key, but then that's not surprising to you because, you know, podcasters are introverts. But what about like family or friends or anyone that you've known that's known you for a long time? I'd say nobody because they don't know what I'm going to do anyway. (laughs) I'm kind of, (laughs) I'm unpredictable in that. Okay. So in that, in, in that way, then it's something that they're not surprised by because, oh, that Eric, he's so unpredictable. You just never know what he's going to do. Right. Or uh, we don't have to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, you know where we're headed down next as we yes, wrap sir. up this conversation. Okay. You ready? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> What's something you've changed your mind about recently? It's overtime, but my show, I used to kiss the guests' ass or the guests' asses. And I was all into maybe they'll be my friend because I, I am actually mm. terminally shy. Yeah. And I was interviewing cool people. And over time, and that's where I said earlier that it's actually part of this question is I realized it's not about the guest, it's never been about me. It's about the audience. Why do they want to be there? Why do they care? Oh, yeah. And that was a hard one thing. And it rolls into even editing. When I started out for the longest time, I was treating it because I want to do live shows. So I, I treat it as that. What I do from that time to that time, unless the phone rings or whatever, it's going as is because I need to train myself mm. and suffer that 
it's like it's a live show. It's recorded live. And I finally realized that, well, it's not recorded live, dummy. I can act as if it's recorded live, and I can practice and try to get better and hear, yeah. hear my problems on playback. But you would really be very kind to your audience if you cut out the ums, especially if the guest is an um machine. <laughs> and it, you yeah. know what? It helps the guest, too. So it's like, does, yeah, it, totally. does it help anybody? No. It'll make the guest sound more presentable. Their message will be clearer. I could cut out mine, and I'm sure that the audience will respect that. So everything has changed to just total focus on what can I do to make this better for the audience, except for choosing the guest. They don't have a choice in that. Yeah. You know, they can recommend if they think of somebody, but that that's kind of my thing. Is It's a little bit of a, okay, they look cool. You're gonna, you got to trust me. You got to trust me. Don't be cool. Get, just come with me. Give, give me a shot. I, I go for some different kinds of people, like punk rock NBA on YouTube or hmm. uh, people like that, because I, they're not everyday people or Viva Fry. Yeah, I think that's important. That's important. And I, I hope that I'm introducing them to new things. And I'm always a little bit scared, too. <laughs> that does scare me a little because it's like, oh, boy, are they going to hate them? Hmm. <laughs> yeah you get two in your head sometimes what's been the uh, response from listeners regular listeners of the show it's been growing over time and other things i do a lot of the listeners are oddly enough podcasters hmm. and I, I i'm i'm very flattered by that because i feel like well they're going to be the pickiest of all yeah yeah but i've i've managed to get better and better so i i think that the response has been yeah, yeah, I listened to it. It's actually really pretty good. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> They're like surprised. <laughs> That's good. What's uh, some, what's the most misunderstood thing about you? A most misunderstood thing about me is that I'm cold or aloof. Hmm. And people meeting me in person, I, I'm not super expressive, and that that's really um, a terminal shyness. Mm-hmm. Which is not right, Carrie. I'm on a microphone. I'm trying to perform for you, but this is in a function doing a job. Yeah, yeah. If I was to walk into a room, there's a bunch of strangers. Uh, you know, I don't know who to talk to. I'm, I, I'm very shy. I don't, I don't know. You know, which way to go. So I'll come across yeah. as just kind of cold. Is there anything you've done or have started to do to change that perception of you? Yes, actually. Uh, and the podcasting has helped. I'm trying to notice things about people if I mm, can. That's a good one. And a really, this is a great moment for me in real life. It was like a, a major breakthrough, but I was renting a car with my boss and he knows how shy I am. This is my day job. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to the woman who was renting the car or you know, doing the rental thing. And she had on a smartwatch. So I'll always try to comment on that kind of thing because I know about it. I know how to talk to it, things like that. And I'll say, Hey, um, uh, which, which one is that? And I forgot what it was. It was like active gear or something, but she said that, yeah, I, I love it. I, I got to have that on, you know, with my, my other job, I'm a mortician and I, you know, can't keep my hands out of stuff. So, and she, and she goes mortician and she said mortician, you know, so devoche. And I was like, what? 
<laughs> because I'm triggered. Now that I'm interviewing people, I'm listening for that nugget. Oh, yeah. And I, oh, you totally. know, I jumped on that. I was like, did you say mortician? Yeah. And I'm like, why did you say it quietly? Like, that is awesome. And and we just started talking. And and it was just like I was doing an interview. Yeah. Um, now, there were, there were benefits afterward. But the, the cool thing is that I broke through. I'm talking to somebody, communicating with them. And ironically, great things happen. She was like, oh, you know what? Yeah, let me just upgrade the car here. Oh, wait, I don't <laughs> think it's in stock. Okay, well, never mind that. We'll just get a midsize. And, and she's like, oh, damn, the Camaro is already taken. And I didn't ask That's for funny. anything. It yeah, was yeah, just, yeah. it was so much fun to just talk to her. So I am, I'm trying to make it a point, especially if there's something that they're doing, they have on that may be colorful or bright or different, because I feel like, yeah. I feel like they're making a statement, so maybe I should try to comment on that statement. Maybe they're 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 signaling that they want to talk or or in their own something. way. Yeah, I I don't know because I think I'm sure. no. It makes perfect sense because I've I've heard this is a great way to sort of break the ice. And to to your point, for someone who is like uh, terminally shy or not good at starting conversations, literally it could be something as simple as like nice earrings or. Right nice shoes or like nice waveform on your t-shirt you know yeah. like eric like <laughs> yeah or but again it, like the, the purpose of it is just to start the conversation and by you you know sometimes when you think about it you being terminally shy is you know you being in your own head because by you not engaging you're taking away from the counter attendant's ability to let you know or or have an opportunity to express something that is different about how she lives her life so i think you know that's one way to look at it like the more you you the more you stop thinking about like how being shy makes you feel mm -hmm. um it may be an opportunity for you to to push yourself out of your comfort zone because you never know like to your point you know what where are these all everyone's got a story i always like to say like everyone's got a story like if you get into a room and there's like a hundred people in there you spend an hour reach one of those people you're gonna get a hundred amazing stories you just have to know what questions to ask so and everyone's awesome too deep deep down it's really wild that and sometimes you have to dig at it because well you yeah. know that's it's just me you know and we all feel that it's like well that's just me and it's like well wait a minute you did what yeah, exactly. Or you knew who? It, 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 but it's nothing to them because it's just in their life. Exactly. They think it's mundane. Yeah. Well, there's been nothing mundane about this conversation, Eric. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad uh, we seem to have gotten the, the, the podcasting gods riled up for a while because we probably tried this interview at least two or three times that I can remember and maybe more. So it's been a combination of scheduling and technology and uh, travel. And so things started to go a little south earlier today. And I was like, what's going on? It's like, then I, I took it on as a challenge. And I'm like, we're going to have this rain or shine and uh, we're going to, it's going to sound much better in production than it did during the actual interview. I'll, I'll have the listener know that for a fact. So. <laughs> Jerry's going to have a fun time editing. So uh, thanks again for being flexible. Thanks again for your passion for the podcasting community, your support of my show, your support of folks in the podcasting space. I, I see that you're an active participant. It, it's, a, it's a medium that I, it's clear that you're passionate about. You treat with a lot of respect. And I think 
Um, it helps anyone else who's coming into podcasting see that this is something that's uh, you know a, a viable craft to learn, a, a viable uh, you know job to aspire to have. Um, and so I'm, I'm I'm thoroughly appreciative of the fact that you take it seriously and you're looking to to make it grow and to make your mark in it. So thanks for that. Oy, thanks so much for having me, Dave. What's the best place for folks to learn more about the podcast and about you? It's uh, unstructured everywhere, but unstructuredpod.com. And I've got links to Twitter, Facebook, everything. So thanks again thanks to again, Eric, Eric for coming time. on the show. You. Glad we were able to work Thank out you. those scheduling snafus and finally have this great conversation. It's refreshing to meet someone who's such a fan of the interview as I am. And I felt like it was a great back and forth conversation. And it inspired me to always make sure that I'm doing my best when I'm having this time set aside. Don't forget to tune in next week for my conversation with Scott Gurian. He's the host of Far From Home. And he was referred to me by a previous guest, Stephanie Lahart. It's the story of Scott's road race across Mongolia and I think that's enough to tease you <laughs> to listen into that fantastic episode. Thanks again to our sponsor Focusrite and the fantastic and clean sounding Scarlett 2i2 third generation sound card. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. If you made it this far no doubt you're listening out for the retention hashtag. Let's go with the structured Eric. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Have a great week. <laughs>